Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone, good evening, good afternoon or good morning whenever you're listening to this episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast and I really hope you enjoy it, I think you will. I've got a special guest, a good friend of mine called Mark Cummings who is a garden designer and a horticulturalist um, who I've known for several years. We met through a mutual friend who insisted we should meet because we had a lot in common, isn't that right Mark? It is indeed. Yeah, well, thanks for joining me uh, this evening. It is an evening during lockdown when we're recording this. I hope everyone has uh, is getting through it or has gotten through it, um, depending where we are when this episode goes out. But yeah, really good to have you um, come on as a guest, Mark. You've got um, quite interesting views on how we garden and how we look after our landscape and uh, what we should all be doing for um, the planet and for people. Um, through gardening and horticulture. Um, you've had a, a fairly interesting career path. Um, I think we'll probably start there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I um, graduated as a nurse in um, 1998 and worked in London in the NHS for 10 years. Um, had quite a varied career in the hospital and a little bit of community work. Really enjoyed it. But I also... Um, bought a flat with a friend and developed the garden there and quite enjoyed that. And then after 10 years of the NHS, I decided on a career change. So I um, retrained as a garden designer. I went to the English Gardening School in Chelsea, which was an experience. Um, it was good, um, yeah. but it was very, it was very, very white middle class. I was going to say that's quite a, a high-end place to go and train, is it? Yeah, yeah, it was quite, it was quite interesting. Um, as a as a Derby lad, to go to Chelsea was was quite something. <laughs> okay, did you fit in? Yeah, to be fair, everyone was very welcoming and very um, <laughs> very accepting, um, and there, there was a good variety of individuals there. But it was, yeah, it was an experience. Yeah. So, how long was that training? Uh, the de- the design diploma was for a year. And then yeah. after that, I did a, a, a certificate in practical horticulture at my city and, go, city and guilds in horticulture. Um, so I did that at Cable Manor. Uh, I think that was the RHS level two. So that was another academic year of practical gardening, which was a lot of fun, actually. I learned, yeah. I learned a hell of a lot on that course. Did you have an interest in gardening like as a kid or did it just come about when you had this project with the new property or what? Actually, when I, when I was younger, I did a fair bit of gardening with one of my aunts um, over one summer holiday. Um, mm. And I remember we, we did all this work in the garden and I woke up the next day and I'd got a really sore throat and, as, and I blew my nose and there was just all soil in the handkerchief. So yeah. that, was, that was very definitely a productive day in the garden. Yeah, um, that's always a sign of hard work. Yeah. <laughs> and then... Um, but, but yeah, so that was so. But then went to did my GCSEs and didn't really think anything else of gardens at all, like most teenagers don't. Um, and I think that's interesting. It's kind of an indictment of what's happening in, in education today because gardens are a big, important factor for lots of primary schools, not necessarily all primary schools, but lots of primary schools. And there's often funding for school gardens and grow your own and that kind of thing. And then it just falls by the wayside when you get to secondary school. And I, I wonder why that is, because because we, we want to get more people interested in gardening and get more people involved. Um, and yet it, it doesn't seem to be seen as a logical career option. Yeah. And there's lots and lots of research to show that gardening is really good for behaviour modification with, with children who have difficult, atten- difficult attention spans and it's a good a good way of sort of um, improving kids' behaviour if they're, if they're having difficulty. Um, and it's also a, a good alternative to an academic route. And yet it's just it's just off the curriculum. It's a real shame. Yeah, yeah. And um, you left nursing then, obviously, um, to, to pursue a career primarily in garden design, right? You, yes, you set up right. your own garden design company. Yeah, that's correct. But I, I quickly found that I actually I enjoyed the plants more than the people. Yeah. Um, 
And I think that there's a lot there's a lot of nurturing and caring with nursing. Um, and I think that, that that's obviously translates to gardening as well. And I, I think it's interesting that you, you do have to spend a lot of time nurturing and caring for clients more so than the plants sometimes. And it, it and it it can be quite exhausting. <laughs> but it's like a customer service job, really more so than a plants job, garden design, isn't it? Yeah, there's a lot of sociology and psychology in it. <laughs> really, yeah, quite interesting. I know from um, from vetting in clinics that it can be hard work. Um, you know, dealing with clients and demanding clients in particular. <laughs> I think I think that's true. It's it's I think it's. It's understanding what can and can't be achieved in a in a time frame, and and I've I've designed in London, um, and a lot of my clients have been quite high end, um, influential people, and there's there's an expectation that comes with that, and when you're working with a a living natural product such as plants, yeah. <laughs> they that is also very weather dependent. You're not necessarily going to get Sissinghurst in a tiny yeah. courtyard and, and a lot of people just cannot understand that <laughs> unrealistic expectations yes hence the psychology yeah. and sociology yeah and i guess kind of um educating your clients about that that this is not a computer or a car or a machine that is predictable it's a plant it's a living being and um you're not always going to get the result that you want even if you do it correctly, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. But but it's amazing to know how many people that just don't understand that, no matter how many times you try and explain. <laughs> and maybe that goes back to the, the gap in our education system about plants and animals and in the environment and, and um, the world around us, you know. Um, I see it with, you know, pet owners not really understanding animals and behavior and how they work but i see it as well on ealing wildlife group you know people not understanding that you know the bird the sparrowhawk coming in and feeding on their beloved blue tit which is actually about 20 blue tits visiting their garden is a natural process and it's not the enemy it's just doing what nature intended so i think there's a disconnect with nature um these days and, and maybe that is um a big gap in our education system maybe would you agree I, I agree i was just about to use the word disconnect myself so now i'm gonna have to think of another adjective but um i <laughs> That's fine. I, I do agree with that and I, I i've been fortunate enough to be involved with a project called inspiring the future so every now and then i'll go into a school and talk about my work um i try and do it two or three times a year and and, it, and the age range varies i've been to um primary schools and tried to talk to four and five year olds um, and then secondary schools and talk to 14 and 15 year olds. And it, and it's interesting the response you get. And, and I, I did take, I took in sort of lettuce seeds and then some, and some lettuces. Yeah. And it was quite surprising that um, a lot of the primary school kids just had no idea that lettuces came from seeds. Right. And, and didn't come in a plastic package, which was, <laughs> you know, I think, I think that, you know, society as a whole, on a, on, a, on a wider sort of basis, is it's it's very instant, very now, very hermetically sealed. And I think that that horticulture and agriculture and viticulture sort of do rail against that. But we don't, we, we just don't give it enough credence at, 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 in in the educational establishment. Mm. And do you think that's? Um specific problem to london schools or city schools or do you think it's a nationwide issue mark i think it's possibly possibly more in london schools but i think nationwide a, a friend of mine um works in a school in norfolk she's just won some funding to do the school garden there and she's going absolutely hell for leather the, the work that she's producing is absolutely amazing the funding came about from the sugar tax so um, ah, right, yeah. she got quite a lot of money um to develop to develop the school garden but obviously, not that depends on the head teacher how that money gets spent. So if 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 the head teacher isn't really horticulturally minded, it, it the money won't get spent in that area. I think it's a I think it should come at a policy level that horticulture is involved in in all schools really. Yeah, I think it's it's sad that uh, kids don't know where their food comes from and don't know the impact of how we grow our food on the environment as well 
Um, it's just so important right now, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I think most kids think that the food comes from Sainsbury's or Waitrose or Aldi, yeah. depending, you know, depends on the social, socioeconomic group. Yeah, and it's a generational thing. Like, you know, um, if their parents don't aren't really connected to where their food comes from, they're not going to be either. But you, um, am I right in saying you sort of um, moved away from garden design more into horticulture and um, part of your mission, I suppose, was to try and get people to reconnect with horticulture and where their food comes from, yeah? Absolutely, because the, the although I did the design course, my, my business trajectory over the last 12 years is, is definitely much more horticulturally based. Um, I still tend to design a couple of gardens a year and, and I'm fortunate because well, unfortunately, in some respects, that there's a lack of skilled gardeners in London and in, indeed nationally. Um, so people tend to want us to stay around and look after the gardens after we've designed them. And yeah. I, I've been fortunate enough to get a lot of work through word of mouth recommendations. So myself and my little team of gardeners have a, have a nice little um, nice little portfolio of gardens to look after, um, and we get we get we get sort of free reign. And I sort of last year and the year before. I uh, made the decision to go completely chemical free, um, much to the kind of angst of some clients. Yeah. Um, when I was used chemicals minimally for the last 10 years anyway, I, d- I don't really believe in it. I just believe in planting what will work. And it, it, London is sort of very heavy clay with lots of slugs and snails. So I tend to plant plants that can cope with that. No hostas in your garden. No, so. <laughs> unfortunately not. They always look. I, I did try. I mean, I battled that for a couple of times with one client who loved them, but they just. I'm. Um, I was just mentioning before uh, we started recording that I was expecting my nematodes in the post oh, that's, um, that's right, today or yeah. tomorrow. I'm lucky enough that I live on. Uh, I have a fourth floor balcony, and if I just control the uh, pots with nematodes once a year it tends to keep the slugs at bay they don't like to to climb the fourth floor for my hostas <laughs> I did, I did, <laughs> so that's uh, one solution throw I, your hostas up in the air i was just gonna say grow, grow them really high up i mean fully yeah. enough i mean i do love hostas and just as, as an aside I, i've got some that were a gift from a very special friend and every yeah. year they look like they've been hit the 12 go, 12 four shotgun yeah so this, like wedding lace right? oh yeah so a, a few weeks ago i literally tips them all out of the pots, empty them, and I washed the roots, and I washed them really thoroughly. And they looked amazing. I, I did a little Instagram post. It looked like um, the, the models of blood vessels that you get in biology labs. I remember seeing it, yeah. 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 And um, so I then re- replanted them and then thought, oh, my God, they're just going to die. That was a really stupid thing to do. But they've started to sprout. And now I'm, I've got high hopes for these hostas this year. I was worried about mine as well because mine also got vine weevil. Oh, wow. um, so I may need to uh, to do nemeslug and nemesis for vine weevil oh, this year. Cut the cord, I, I, vine weevil. Cut the cord. <laughs> yeah, they're they're a total pest. Um, I was worried about them, and then I did a bit of weeding in the pots, and uh, I noticed they're all shooting up now. So no, hopefully, we've got a good hosta season. But yeah, you you moved into horticulture. You're you're kind of um, more mission driven and trying to encourage people down the route of horticulture and you set up a um a collective right ah uh, yeah yes um, um well actually I, I didn't set it up i was kind of manhandled into it um oh, okay it was it was an interesting couple of conversations um so uh nicola one of the colleagues of mine who owns a really lovely gallery space in leighton called host met me in the street. She knows I'm a gardener and she met me in the street and she said, oh, um, there's a group of people that was, have, um, are meeting to discuss some community gardens. You might want to get involved. And it was a it was a throwaway. Quite an accident then. Yeah, it was came a, into this. absolutely. It was only because I'd come back from yoga at a specific time. If I hadn't have bumped into her then, we wouldn't be having this conversation probably. But yeah. um, she said, oh, you want to get involved with this group? So I, I emailed, um, well, I contacted Sarah and we had a chat and then agreed to represent Leighton as part of my borough, thinking that it would be quite easy. And sort of 18 months later, we're now in the middle of a, a really interesting project called Forest Flora. Um, right. And there's six or seven of us as a committee 
committed to raising the profile of horticulture across the borough of Waltham Forest. Um, and our wider remit is to sort of, you know, enhance biodiversity. Um, and we support all of the community gardens across the borough to, 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 to greater and lesser extent. Some, some are very up and running and don't really need our help. Others are just starting. We're always there to offer them advice and support. We do regular plant sales to raise funds. And then one of the other things that we do is um, as part of trying to raise the profile of horticulture as a skilled career. So we have a journal section and we we interview interesting people across the profession. So garden designers, gardeners, nursery owners, um, garden photographers, anybody that sort of is related to horticulture and does something interesting just to show that actually there's more to it than being a council gardener. Yeah. And who who is involved in Forest Flora? You mentioned there's six or seven of so you. So there's myself, there's Sarah Purchase. Um, she, she's the co-chair with me. Then there's a chap called Clive Meridine, who's a garden designer. Tim Hewitt, who's a gardener. And I mean, I, I was very fortunate enough to work with Tim Hewitt a few years ago. He he really is a very gifted, talented, talented gardener. Um, and and I, I love the work he does. Um then there's a, a last called Sarah Reed. She's gonna. She's just come in recently, and she's gonna be our school's lead. Uh, there's a lady called Amanda. I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name. I'm afraid. I think it's just Jehenska. She yeah. is. Um, she runs a big community garden in Chingford, and she's also an incredible asset. She she really knows her stuff, and she's a pleasure to talk to during the committee meetings. Um, and then we've got a, a last called Claudia, who's Sarah's business partner, but she has quite a difficult time work-wise so we don't see her very often and then we're always looking for other people to support and looking for volunteers and so we do well we've got a good we've got some good community involvement actually yeah and have you set up um new community gardens or is it all kind of existing projects that you're helping support so so we're supporting existing community gardens but we are doing a little bit of gorilla gorilla gardening so tree pits we tend to plant up with sort of plants that we can find um, and I, I myself and another volunteer look after the Leighton Midland Road train station overground. So we do the yeah. garden there. Great. And you're doing some educational work as well with schools. Absolutely. So, so Sarah will be our schools, schools link and Amanda just a fair bit of, she does a lot of stuff on, in her community garden with, with school kids. Brilliant. And how much time does it take? Like <laughs> how much? A lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's that when, like I said, when, I mean, I do say to Nicola every now and then that I will never forgive her for what she's done to my life. Oh, God. <laughs> there, are so, there are some weeks that I'll spend, and this is unpaid, bear in mind, that I'll spend eight or nine hours on forest flora, um, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that is a whole working day. Um, and other weeks, it's just a couple of hours. But it, I really believe it, believe in it, and I think it's really important. I was going to say, what do you, what do you get out of it personally? Well, personally, I, th- I kind of think that we, we've really got to stop our use of chemicals in the gardens. Um, and I think people don't realise that there is another way. You, you don't have to douse your gardens in Provado or douse your gardens in Roundup um, yeah. to, get a, to get a beautiful, productive garden. And I, and I think that it, it, it needs to be sort of, shown at a local level so for example i look after the planting on as well as the train station i look after the planting on francis road and we use no chemicals there and 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 really the planting there does look really lovely and people comment on it all the time and i think it's important to show to lead by example yeah so that 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 we have a responsibility to be as you know as environmentally aware as we possibly can yeah I'm trying to do that on my allotment site, which is um, quite traditional. There's uh, blue slug pellets thrown everywhere each spring when it's seedling planting out season. And I'm trying to talk to people about organic methods and the fact that you're throwing all these chemicals. Not only are you throwing them in the environment where they're doing lots of harm to, to various creatures, you know, further up the food chain. But you're also throwing them on your food. Yes. You know, where you're growing your food, there's residues of these chemicals on your food and in your soil yeah. for quite a long time in many cases isn't there well absolutely um, yeah to me it kind of defeats the purpose of growing your own healthy delicious food if you're going to cover it in chemicals and we just don't know what some of these chemicals do in the long term 
Well, there's very little long-term research into it. I mean, they're known to cause, they're known to be neurotoxic. A lot of the gardening chemicals are known to be incredibly dangerous. And yet and we, carcinogenic and, as well, and right? we just splash them around like <laughs> like it's Old Spice aftershave. I find it really horrifying. Yeah, I'm making I'm making small wins, small progress. I've got um in my line of plots, I've now got three people to install ponds, oh, wow. and we have newts and slowworms and um, a couple of frogs around. So I'm telling them that that's our natural slug control. Absolutely, try and encourage those guys instead of throwing your blue pellets around. Um, but it it's. I mean, I think it is improving, but I think it's so ingrained in what it is to be a gardener, especially with kind of our parents' generation, I suppose, um, that, you know, part of being a successful, productive or good gardener is that you have your garden shed lined up with your products that you use <laughs> on certain crops or certain Absolutely. flowers, don't you? Yeah, you just have like a cupboard full of napalm. Around. Yeah, roses, you know, need a spray for the yeah, old exactly. green flies. Like, well, why don't you try and put up a blue tit nest box and they'll eat your green fly on your broad beans, you know, when they're feeding their chicks. It's interesting um, what you say about the slug pellets as well, because I mean, I have, I mean, I've had clients just literally douse the garden in them. And I, the way slug pellets work is they actually contain an attractant. Yeah, so, I know. So, so Come I on, explain, because a lot of people don't get this. No. So less is really more with slug pellets. And I, I I mean, I don't use them now. I've not used them for years. But I mean, I, I, I have one client that occasionally will go and buy some and then I throw them away when she's not looking. But I, <laughs> You're fired. Yeah, basically. Um, and I won't be ever fired because there's not enough good gardeners to go around. So, you know, I get away with murder, really. Um, yeah, it's hard to demand. rather than to just put up with their shit. So, <laughs> sorry, we might need to. <laughs> it's fine. You're allowed, curse on this podcast. <laughs> and um, I did try to explain that you only need sort of two, literally two or three pellets around the place because they just attract the slugs. And that's it. You're feeding a population garden, of slugs from the next door gardens. It's like ringing the lunch bell. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, I'm hoping, hoping we get more. Um, amphibians and birds and things on the allotment we're pretty lucky we've got little owls and slow worms and, and all sorts and you hedgehogs should, actually you should plant um, hostas on your allotment you'll get away with hostas there do you reckon absolutely i had one i did have one client a few years ago and he he had brilliant hostas and his garden was full of frogs from the next door's pond so yeah um now talk to me about the kind of obviously education is really really important and you're trying to kind of change minds and um encourage an interest in horticulture in, in the younger generation but what about um biodiversity and what about the role of garden so you've kind of moved through a, a path from being a garden designer and um dare i say you know contrived spaces and real man-made um kind of spaces but from talking to you and knowing you you are moving way more towards kind of naturalized um styles of of garden and um a little bit more freedom and and wilderness in your in your kind of gardening ethos right that that's absolutely right um and in in the local in this in my portfolio of gardens we we do every now and then again much to many clients consternation not mow patches of the lawn and let them go to meadow. I mean, they're only grass. They're only grassy meadows. You you won't be. It won't be a true style meadow. Fine, but still fantastic for wildlife, right? But great for wildlife and butterflies and, and things. Yeah, and to be to be very to be honest, a lot of the clients do. I mean, they do a bit of an eye roll when I say we're going to do this and that and the other, and it will help with the environment. But they do tend to run with it. They're they're very patient. Mm. Um, and they don't want to lose you, Mark. Well, possibly, but I think also there is a bit about it's quite a lot of fun to lose control a little bit in the gardens, you know, and see what happens, right? Kind of no, turn absolutely turn a lawn on its head and and just let it go and see what happens. Absolutely, are most of them impressed with with what happens? Um, Do they, does it win them over when they see bumblebees and butterflies? And sometimes a couple of people are like because I think the thing with grassy meadows, so so the traditional English meadow kind of has its time in the spring. Whereas the obviously the American prairies develop and look fantastic later in the year. So I think come sort of May, June time, everyone's a little bit over the squashy grass. Yeah. Um, so we tend to tidy it up again after that. But what I do do with the borders is tend to plant more of a prairie style now. Um, 
I have to modify that because not all the plants will work. And I never plant echinacea because it's just, they are just slug fodder. And then that. I was going to say, I've never got them to establish in a garden either. And I think the really important thing to do is, is if clients are giving you money and time and, and energy to listen to your expertise and listen to what you're going to do with the garden, you can't ever set it up to fail. So I'm very careful about the plants I choose because there's no point in saying, well, I'm not using slug pellets and then watching half their plants. But then I'm going to give you no, basically just, slug food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just not. So um, Rebecca is a good alternative to echinaceas? Yeah, I, I get away with Rebecca's quite well. And, and also um, asters. Asters look great in yeah. gardens. So And also I think people get a bit sniffy about the common old white, the big white daisies. I can't remember their names now, but. Leucanthemum, is it? That's right. Thank you, Leucanthemum. Um, yeah. People get a bit sniffy about those, but I love them. And you can have a I've daisy. Just, I've just sown some seeds and they're coming up in my greenhouse. So they're going to be a feature on my plot this year. Save me a few of those, would you? Um, I will. I'm going to, um, yeah, one of the pieces we're going to write for the uh, Journal of Forest Flora is that you can have a daisy in your garden every every month of the year. And I think that would be quite fun. So I'm going to try out that. I'm going to do 12, year, 12 months of daisies. Great. <laughs> yeah, I love them. They're very cheery, and the insects love them even more importantly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But on a wider on a on a wider scale, I, I'd like to get out of the gardens. Really, I'd I'd like to. Um, I went to Stockholm a couple of years ago um, and visited the Rosendale. Um, oh yeah, I've heard you talk about and this. And it really, really blew my mind. And I was, what is it? So the Rosendale is it's a basically a a working garden, an orchard, a cafe, and a nursery all on one site. It's a big education yeah. centre as well, but it's more its atmosphere. It's really beautiful. It's, you know, you you it, your shoulders really drop when you when you walk around that site, and the food was delicious. And it, it that whole plot to plate ethos it just works really well there. And so I, they grow everything for the cafe. That's right. <clears throat> right. Bread is made on site and, you know, the, the orchards provide all the fruit and and then they grow and propagate in the nurseries. And I just thought, as my career develops, I think my, my idea would be to create a Rosendale somewhere in this country. And then also, as, as, that, as that idea was percolating, some friends of mine bought a six-acre farm not far from where I am now, um, and it took me a little while to get over the jealousy, but I think they're doing a fantastic job of their gardens there, and they're building their own. Is it public yet? Uh, no, it'll it won't be for another couple of years or three years, I don't think. But it, I was thinking you could give them a little plug. <laughs> we'll come back to that. But they okay. are they are a um, they're they're really inspirational to, to see their work, and and conversely, they they have their gardens are developing very organically. They've not drawn a plan, right? You know, most, most garden designers would have an absolute canary at how they've developed their gardens. Yeah. But they look, they look fantastic. So, um, it, it, did you say it was six acres that they bought? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a site to behold. And what are their plans? Are they, they're planning on growing food and having a food business there? They are, I think their plans are in flux at the moment because of coronavirus, but they're building their house there and then they are having, they're possibly going to be doing an events venue but they're already growing their own food and you know there's an orchard on site there's some great veteran trees in that orchard some old old apple trees nice they are a sight to behold very good um you mentioned styles of planting being kind of prairie style and um, more naturalistic which is uh the epitome of my favorite garden designer i don't know if you like him or you're going to roll your eyes but maybe he's everyone's favorite in that style pete udolph Oh yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you rate his work? I I do absolutely rate his work. I think we have to be careful in this country though, because some of the plants just aren't suitable for the climates. He's yeah, he chooses a lot of North American perennials, yeah. doesn't he? And we are we are a true maritime climate, and I think that many of his plants struggle with that. Yeah. But I think, like anything, it, we should be taking away the principles of that planting. You know, the fact that it is pollinator friendly, the fact that it provides seeds for birds, the fact that it... And it's beautiful at all times of year, isn't oh, it? Oh, and it's beautiful. I think the phrase the phrase that we use for that kind of thing, and it, and it sort of comes back to the therapeutic aspects of gardening, is that it's that kind of planting is just full of soft fascinations. 
And I'd never heard that phrase before, but I did a, did a study day with Olivia Kirk um, a few weeks ago, um, and she talked about designing gardens for, the, for, for, for therapeutic spaces. And as a lecturer, she absolutely blew my mind. I mean, bear in mind, I was a nurse for 10 years. So when she mm. talked about therapeutic gardening and, and gardening for mental health, um, she, she intrinsically knew everything that the patient would need and everything that the carer would need and everything that the relative would need. And yeah. I just thought I was so impressed with that. You know? So what did you say it was? Soft fascinations. So, soft fascinations. Those little, I, those little things that you see, like the, the wave, the, like the butterflies and the bees hovering over their flowers. And, just, and the light catching on little seed heads. Exactly. And, and the way things move in the breeze. I thought the word you were going to use, which I've heard used for his gardens as well, was a dreamscape. I, yeah, that's also a good, a good way. They kind of like when you see it on a grand scale. Um, the Lurie Garden in Chicago um, is one of his gardens that I've seen and spent some time in. And when you see it on a grand scale, when it's at its peak and it's just got these like drifts and mounds of gorgeous grasses moving and these blocks of colorful perennials in amongst them it does look a little bit otherworldly and then in the winter time when the frost is on that and it looks completely different but all these like textures and structures and and things from the dead uh, grasses and seed heads it's it is incredibly beautiful isn't it it is it is stunning and i mean i went i was i saw the high line a few years ago and i think oh yeah one of my, there too. that's great isn't it yeah absolutely one of my favorite places um, it's interesting as well. I think people get very the, the romantic notion of those frosty, fro- those frosty images that you see about the sort of the Udolf style planting. It just doesn't happen in London because we don't have the climate. Mm. So when, in in Derby where I am now, and in in Staffordshire where, where I have family, you do get that kind of hard landscape, yeah. get, get that hard level in that landscape. But in London, when it's just warm and wet. That 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 prairie tends to be tends to have to be managed over the winter a little bit better, otherwise it just looks like mush, and the clients become unhappy. Yeah, and yeah. It, and again, it comes right, down to the right place, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Mental. It's the context. Is it's everything about context? Yeah, yeah. And again, managing expectation. So we've talked, Mark, about like future plans and things. You you kind of want to get away from the more contrived, you know, garden design and high maintenance gardens. Um, one of my future guests we just rescheduled we're hoping to do an episode very soon is um mary reynolds who is a former chelsea winner and um she describes herself as a reformed garden designer and nature activist and she has quite an extreme viewpoint i suppose she actually says that um our gardens are numbered we shouldn't be gardening anymore we should be giving all of our land back to nature um if we're not using it to grow our own food now that's quite an extreme view but where would you sit on that kind of sliding scale you're obviously on a a journey maybe not to to that extreme end of the scale but where would you see yourself going in terms of like how far you get to kind of more naturalistic and um, environmentally friendly ways of of managing landscape and gardening itself i think just just to address um the opinion of Mary Reynolds. I think it's fascinating, and and to some extent, I agree. I think that there's there's that there is just too much contrived landscape. But we have to remember that, that gardening is so much more than food production. You know, we we garden for our mental health and our well being. Gardening is really important from an educational point of view. Um, conservation and preservation of plants is is another another reason to to, to garden more formally. Yeah. I think we. We've we've been plant hunters for centuries, um, and it would be such a shame to lose lose all of that work for the sake of you know sending everything to nature. And also, gardens do they they provide a really really important unique habitat, especially to many of our pollinators. I've been to some study days recently, and I, I've been fortunate enough to talk to a lot of the apiarists in and around London, and Believe it or not, uh, London has half of the species of bees 
live in London as opposed to the whole country. I'm not saying half yeah. the bees live in the country, live in London, but half the not species the of bees, of bee species the diversity of bees high. in yeah. London is fantastic. And that's because we've got some really, really good, interesting gardens full of lots of different plants. And if you, if you stopped gardening, a lot of places would just revert to a, a monoculture. You know, if you've got, uh, if you, if you're keeping nettles at bay, you let it revert to nettles it it it, it becomes it becomes less interesting to, to 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 many more insects well that's it i think our green spaces need to almost have some management to maintain in a mosaic habitats don't yeah. they um we certainly know Absolutely. with some of the conservation work we do at ealing wildlife uh group that you know there is a bit of hacking back of brambles to be done in certain kind of semi-managed landscapes because if you just have brambles then yeah, it might be good for some butterfly species and, and cover for birds and some berries in the autumn. But actually, if you create a patchwork or a mosaic of some bramble thickets and some open ground and some woodland edge type habitat where you have that mosaic, you, you do improve biodiversity. So yeah, you're dead right. I think there's space for nature and gardens alongside. I think the extreme example that I use with, with Mary's philosophy is, I'll, I'll ask her, but I think it's born out of a frustration of how obsessed we are as a species and as um, modern society in controlling everything and everything being neat and tidy. And um, her philosophy really is to let go in, in spaces where we can, where we really don't need to be manicuring lawns and, and you know, cutting the edges of our flower beds and, and having things all neat and in a row. Um, her philosophy is more let, let it go and let donate some some of your your land back to nature and which i really like i definitely agree with that i definitely agree with that i think that um i I just think we're obsessed with mowing verges obsessed with mowing and i just kind of think just i mean there's obviously a place for a, a well manicured lawn and i would suggest that's either wimbledon or a golf course i think pretty much the rest of yeah the rest of the cityscape, I mean, and uh, interestingly, I, I was fortunate enough to catch, well, I caught the train back from uh, Derby to London, and I happened to sit opposite the, well, with, basically, um, the, the leader of the council for Derby and two right. of his colleagues, and we, we had a long chat and, and one of the things we talked about was there's, there's an exciting new charity called Trees for Derby um, and they want to plant a tree for every member of the, every citizen of Derby, which mm. I think is an amazing thing. But I was thinking, why stop there? Let's plant a tree for Nottingham and Leicester too. But, um, yeah. but interestingly, I, I, was, I was saying, because he, he mentioned about mowing and I said, well, the, the point is, is that there's still a way to go with public perception of what is and isn't environmentally friendly and what just looks messy. And there's yeah. also the cynical, the cynical response that, well, it's just the council saving money. And I think what, what they need to do is on these verges is, is actually to very neatly mow the edge. So there's a mowing strip around the edge. Yeah. And to just use hazel hurdles and just rope that air off. So it looks, it looks really neat and intentional. And, that's and to put point. some signage maybe to explain what they're doing and why. Absolutely. And I think it, I think it's really important. And again, it comes to engaging the local schools because there's no reason why the local schools shouldn't be involved with this, this kind of thing. And sort of like we do the big bird watch and the butterfly count. And why aren't we, why can't we be doing that in these little areas and saying, look, let's stop the mowing, but make it look neat and intentional and then see what, see what's growing, see what's buzzing around there. So then it becomes a community asset and there's a sense of ownership of it and pride in it, right? Yes. If you look at the work of um, James Hitchmore and Nigel Dunnett and their pictorial meadows and their, um, at the University of Sheffield, the Greater Green Project, I mean, the, the, the planting in Sheffield just blows most of the cities out of the water. It just looks absolutely fantastic. And it's been shown to be less expensive than the current methods we're using now in most councils. Yeah, we've seen that in Ealing. Ealing um, Council are pretty good um, in terms of putting in, putting in, um, you know, annual wildflower mixes and things. And and the Puritans, you know, often criticise it because, well, that's not native. They're like, they're ornamental plants, and you know, it's a it's contrived, and that's not really what a meadow looks like. And I think that's not the point. The point is to to make something 
um, that imitates maybe a, a natural meadow, but brings in a lot of life and is cheerful and is colorful. And in other areas, Ealing is really good at leaving areas unmown and allowing more natural sort of grass meadow or wildflower meadow to form. And some of our wildflower meadows in our green spaces in Ealing that they're managing for several years now are absolutely phenomenal. And the plant biodiversity in them is second to none. There's areas here like Horsenden Hill where you can go out and you can walk through, you know, 60 acres of um, of meadow grassland and you would think you're in the countryside. You wouldn't realise you're in, you know, zone three in London. Um, but there, there, yeah, there's certain councils are doing really, really good, ha, have really good efforts, you know, at, at making that kind of um, part of their management strategy and saving money doing it is a good thing. But also, apart from the money side, um, the environmental impact of mowing lawns every two weeks on a, on a borough wide scale is absolutely criminal in this day and age with climate change, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it's, it's, it's just a waste. It's a waste of time. And it, it's interesting you talk about people griping about native plants. Is Noel Kingsbury, the, the garden designer and ecologist, the point is, is that I think in the UK we've only got about 2,500 native plants. So that's not a particularly wide palette. To create true biodiversity, you don't need to use native plants. They just need to be well I guess non-invasive would be a good start but they need to be fit for purpose so you want a plant that pollinators can access so these great big blousy triple flowers double flowers and yeah petunias well sterile petunias and double flower dahlias are no use to man nor beast but why not add in you know an American native that flowers in September and October that provides and extends value. the season for nectar right absolutely yeah and people obsess about and, and again the neatness that you talk about is and i think ivy gets a really bad rep as well because people either want it pruned right back to within an inch of its life or just to get rid of it but ivy is such an important provider of food in one of the roughest seasons for the, yeah. both the birds and the insects because it's the last the last plant yeah. to flower and also provides excellent berries for birds. Yeah, I've seen bumblebees on ivy into December almost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's great recover as well. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot because of the way that we're warming our planet up and the way London is warmer, and because of the um, the, the non natural streetlights, a lot of birds don't sleep very well. For example, and our, our insects are are on the wing for a much longer season so we we need to feed them we need to acknowledge that and feed them yeah our whole our whole microclimate wherever we are is influenced by people and um as you say it's not as simple as just leaving it for nature there there is a big um contentious debate i suppose about you know natives versus ornamentals but i think in a good garden or a good landscape that's designed with wildlife in mind um, a mixture of native and ornamentals actually is um, is very beneficial for either extending the amount of, of biodiversity it supports or extending the season and maybe filling the gaps, as you say, when um, natural resources are, are a little low, um, you can use ornamentals or non-natives to boost that. Absolutely. And also, we've, we've still got to keep our clients happy. If they're, if they're happy with their garden, they'll spend money on it. And if they spend money on it, it means more nice plants. And if they're happy with all of the wildlife you bring in by using that mix of, of native and ornamentals, then you've, you know, piqued an interest in them. And maybe they're going to be, you know, wildlife warriors <laughs> and advocate for um, for wildlife if they enjoy it. Don't they say that classic phrase of you only protect what you love? Um, Absolutely. And I think getting people to engage, whether it's a, you know, the, the kind of plant snobs might turn their nose up at calendula and um, poppies and, and um, cornflowers on street verges. But actually, if people have the wow factor and then see the amount of bees and hoverflies and butterflies feeding on those flowers, as gaudy as some people might think they are, then, you know, if you've created an interest in someone, especially kids, um, then it's done a good job, isn't it? It's... I think so, yeah. I also think that Sarah Raven has done a massive PR job for um, mm. Calendula and Dahlias and Gladioli and Chrysanthemums. 
the flowers that traditionally people were like, are you absolutely out of your mind when you suggest planting them? Right. <laughs> now, it's snubbery, right? Oh, absolutely. So now I tend to just drizzle a few Sarah Raven catalogs around my clients' houses. And usually, <laughs> and usually they're a little, they are seduced, seduced by the images. And, and to be fair, I think she, I do generally think she's done an amazing job yeah, of, she is of, of re-educate, of re-educating people. And it's also, I mean, other people as well, such as sort of John Lewis Stemple, um, he's done a series like the wood and the lake and the river and his, his, his writing is really delicious. And, and George Monbiot, I mean, I've just read his book feral and that, that again has moved my opinion on, you know, yeah. of, of how I want to garden and how I want to landscape. I only read that fairly recently. It's been on my on my book list for a long, long time. And I read it um, a couple of months ago when I went on holiday. Um, now, a lot of stuff I kind of knew because obviously I'm a big uh, ecology nerd and, and stuff. But um, it's quite an eye opener, really, isn't it? Um, it's terrifying. It's yeah, absolutely it's- terrifying. I, um, I, I gave up. Pretty much, I mean, I'm not 100% vegan, but I pretty, pretty much gave up meat a couple of years ago. And I, and I still eat fish, but having read his section on what we're doing to the seas, um, yeah. I've, I've massively, massively reduced my fish intake as well. I think... The thing that struck me, Mark, sorry to interrupt there, is um, he, he describes it quite well and he gives quite concrete examples of it, as, but it's this shifting baseline syndrome where yes, we're all sort of existing in our own little bubble and our own little generation and at certain times in our our life you know we we start to take an interest in the world around us and and nature and protecting the planet and things but even you know you go back one generation people are telling us now you know how it used to be but how it used to be even one generation ago is still pretty abysmal in terms of biodiversity and and um, the health of the planet compared to five generations ago. We've absolutely obliterated the planet's resources and we've also really, really damaged ecosystems and biodiversity in a seriously short space of time, haven't we? Yes. And, it- and that shifting baseline is, you know, what we consider normal now is actually still absolutely decimated and in big trouble um and we can look back romantically at, and say you know when i my, my dad or my granddad would say you know we used to hear corn crakes um all the time um growing up in fields in kilkenny where i was born and um now we don't hear them at all they're like really rare bird but you know all of the other things that they're parents or grandparents would have heard and seen like corn buntings and curlews and lapwings in every field instead of just the corn crake you know it's changing generation on generation and we we kind of can get a bit um complacent i suppose because we think we're living in the normal and it's just starting to decline i think i think that's true and i also think there's i think people get fatigued by it as well because there's there's this constant blast of oh my god we're all gonna die Mm. um and really, it would be better to, to be saying, look, this is what we can do to reduce that and prevent that. And also, it's it's got to be done at a, at a government level. I mean, the interesting thing about this COVID-19 situation is that, I mean, just in this short space of time, there's been some huge um, environmental impacts. I mean, nowhere near enough to reverse any of the damage, but it's interesting to see just to watch exactly, the world recover, just to watch right? what's happening in a short yeah. time and it's amazing isn't it that actually we can make an effort to do something that happens to impact the environment when you know we've got a pandemic sort of spanning the planet yeah but if we don't do something soon we're not going to really need to worry about a pandemic because we'll be wiping ourselves out anyway yeah totally totally um, that's interesting what you say about you know doom and gloom and eco anxiety now is is uh, a big issue. But I think part of um, part of my strategy anyway, and I think it's an important part with uh, what I do with Ealing Wildlife Group, is not being not shutting down discussion about the the um, difficult topics and things, but celebrating what we do have and um, really reveling in nature and the wonder of it and and teaching people about like how amazing it is and what we do have is worth protecting i think that's an important part of the strategy as well because we can just talk about doom and gloom and how we're all screwed and how the planet is screwed and it just gets tiresome people disengage don't they well, they just completely switch off but and I, I think you're right if, if you if you if you can demonstrate 
how you can encourage butterflies and bees into your garden by not using chemicals and having the and stepping off the lawnmower just have yes exactly the, the no mow may situation but if you if you can basically sort of basically dangle the carrot dangle the organic heritage variety carrot rather than <laughs> rather than the stick because i think really people want people just want a positive outcome and and yeah and i think so, sometimes people are very interested I, I do notice that when when we're doing our plant stands for forest flora that the engagement with the public is really quite something and they're so enthusiastic and i always buy loads of plants you mm. know it's like but I, but but the flip side of that is that there's what what I've noticed also is so when I do the planting at Francis Road, often people will just literally walk their dogs over it or um, the kids will scoot over it. And there's a phenomenon called plant blindness that I just, just can't get my head around. And it's this people just don't see plants in the wider environment. No, they just see green. They see, And I think that's possibly because we... All our planting is so, so municipal. Yeah. You know, there's nothing to... Like when I saw that, I mean, I literally stopped in my tracks when I saw the University of Sheffield planting. Whereas if you... When you're just going down most local high streets, it's just the same old poorly pruned, poorly trained green blobs. And again, that that harks back to horticulture as a skilled career because that we just don't have gardeners that are skilled enough to, to look after those schemes yeah yeah right well look we could talk about uh the the doom and gloom but let's uh end on a positive note um myself and yourself have talked quite a bit about what we would like to do in future and um there's the potential for a bit of collaboration there isn't there absolutely um my dream and it's not a, a strange concept to anyone who knows me is that eventually i will leave london and um look at hopefully buying a little bit of land and getting into food production and rewilding and the rewilding movement like George Monbiot obviously talks about it a lot in, in his book Feral. Um, I've also recommended, uh, many people I think have recommended this book to you and I think you're, it's on your list, Wilding by Isabella Tree at NEP. Yes, that's right. But I would love to, um, in the next phase of my life and career, um, leave the city behind and get involved in rewilding. And I think there's some interesting conversations we could have about my rewilding project and your community horticulture and food project. Absolutely. I, 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 you and I have talked about the rewilding and, and I'm basically very keen to be a part of that. And I, I think from my point of view, I would be much more horticulturally minded. So sort of the Rosendale or the Newt, whereas you would very definitely be more towards the net side of things. And I think that as a site and as a partnership, that could work very well Yeah, to marry the two together. We have, we have some exciting uh, conversations and, and plans to draw up, I think for the future. It would be great. Um, I'm, I'm bringing you to NEP in August, all going well. If we're out of lockdown, we are going and doing a uh, rewilding for small landowners course, aren't we? That, that's correct. I can't wait to show you, Nep. It is a fantastic place. Um, the book Wilding by Isabella Tree, uh, one of the owners of of Nep and the Rewilding Project down in West Sussex. It's an absolutely fantastic book. I'd recommend it to anyone. I think I've mentioned it before on this podcast. But um, just as a concept of of changing, uh, you know, a very traditional massive farm estate over and letting it go and 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 getting rid of the the concept or the kind of obsession with managing um a landscape has seen huge huge benefits with biodiversity and with people i think it's been it's it's an in massively inspiring project and i think um most of their revenue now comes from ecotourism and people wanting to go and um check out exactly what happens and what moves in when we step off that um obsessive need to control the landscape so I really hope you uh, you enjoy it. I think you will when we go visit. I'm really looking forward to that, definitely. Yeah. Have you heard much about NEP or is rewilding on the, um, you know, is it a topic that, that gardeners and garden designers and things are engaging with or talking about? I haven't really heard much about rewilding in the garden design world. I think possibly because it's just on such a vast scale. I do think that there's there's still the, the move for 
much more naturalistic planting and, and more environmentally friendly um, methods. But from my point of view, the, the, thing that, the thing that excites me about the rewilding is precisely the scale of it. Yeah. Like I want to, I want to create, or not create because that's not quite right because we're taking, a hand, we're taking our foot off the accelerator, but I would like yeah. to facilitate quite a large landscape and I think that, yeah. that if you and I work together on a project that is going to generate ecotourism, that the the, the 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 hub of the site where people accommodate are accommodated, or we've got educational um, study days and things, I think that will still have to be relatively loosely landscaped, and 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 that that excites me is to, to produce a landscape that sits really nicely within a naturalistic setting. Yeah, I think it's marrying the the kind of like, as you say, if there's a centralised hub and um, that's landscaped to some degree or managed to some degree, maybe it's it's heavier on the natives that connect it with the wider um, wilder landscape. Absolutely, I think Dan Pearson's. I think it's the Millennium Forest in Japan. That's a massive example of how how you can marry the two together. It's just absolutely stunning. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, we've got a, a bit of talking and, and plotting to do, Mark, I think. <laughs> as long as there's a bottle of wine involved, that's fine by me. Maybe two bottles. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Mark, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's really interesting to hear from, well, to hear your career path from nurse to garden designer to um, kind of more horticulture and now into um, kind of the, the greater good and the greater meaning of of how we interact with our, our landscapes and what it can do. One thing we didn't really kind of um, touch on too much, but I know you are passionate about, is um, kind of community horticulture and mental health programs and, and benefits. Um, you're quite involved with um, with that and you're getting some funding, am I right, through Forest Flora for some projects? We, where... we, were, we were looking at that. This comes down to social prescribing, and, yeah, and sort of the the the, the new government sort of um, you know mobilising um, GP surgeries to sort of look at other ways of engaging patients with chronic health conditions, and actually it, it ranges from horticulture to ceramics to art to to all sorts of things. Um, we, Just explain briefly what what social prescribing is then. So, a lot of patients have a condition that. Is not necessarily medically managed very well, and that's through no one's fault other than the fact that it just isn't necessarily possible. So, for example, respiratory disease, if you've got chronic lung disease, not medication just isn't going to, to, to enhance your life all that well. It won't bring back your lung function, will it? No, it won't. So, but what can, and, and obviously a lot of anxiety is related to lung diseases, but what can help is... Is, is working in gardens or, or working on 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 site, like on farms and sites where um, there are ceramics and art projects, and it, it's, it it relates to reducing anxiety and creating a distraction that sort of shows that there's there's another way of sort of living your life beyond the sort of the inhalers that aren't quite working very well. Yeah, and that yeah. social prescribing is also also paramount in mental health as well. And there are lots of charities such as Thrive and Core Arts in Hackney that, that do very well on the social prescribing side of things. Yeah. I'm going to um, invite um, someone who, who operates out of Horsenden, Horsenden Farm. Um, I mentioned Horsenden Hill, but they do a lot of um, kind of crafts and community horticulture through a charity called Mind Food. So I'm going to invite um, Lucy from Mind Food on for another episode and we will uh we'll explore that in more detail but um mark it's been an absolute pleasure again and thank you for joining me it's been great um i'm sure uh if we do get a little project up and running in the next couple of years um you know there'll be plenty more where this came from absolutely i'll look forward to that cool all right i will speak to you soon mark maybe over a bottle of wine yeah nice one take care thanks a lot bye bye Thanks for listening, guys, to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast. This episode was with Mark Cummings from Forest Flora. Would encourage everyone to uh, look it up. Um, doing absolutely great work over on the other side of London to me in Waltham Forest. If you have enjoyed the episode and you would like to sponsor the costs of future episodes, any donations are welcome at our Patreon, which I'll link in the description below. In the meantime, over and out. And again, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Mm -hmm.